You're listening to a Radio One ninety one FM podcast. Tena koto i tene ahi ahi. This is R One News on Radio One Tereo Idirangi Kotahi ninety one FM. Ko Quinton tene. Coming up on the show today, we have Bonnie with the bulletin and weather. We speak to Professor Helen Roberts in the Department of Finance at the University of Otago about Air New Zealand's recently announced capital raising scheme. We talk to Green MP Chloe Swarbrick about landlord references. We look at the potential for heritage trams to become public transport in Dunedin, speaking to heritage tram driver and enthusiast Alan Robb about the role of trams in public transport. We look at a vaccine passless future from tomorrow. And as always, we speak to critic Tiarohid editor Fox Mayer about this week's issue. Before all that, we have Lips with What the Hell, the Space Mold remix, here on R1 News. And as always, if you have any questions or comments throughout the show, don't forget you can text me on 0212 Radio 1. That's 021 272 3461. You're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1. Coming up on the program, we speak to Professor Helen Roberts from the Department of Finance, and then we speak to Green MP Chloe Swarbrick about the landlord reference saga that's been playing out over in Australia. Beyond that, we look at the future of public transport in Otipoti. First up, here's Bonnie with the news and weather.
the news on Radio 191FM. Kia ora koutou. This is your R1 News Bulletin. It's 11.06am. Korboni aho. Vaccine pass mandates will be dropped today from 11.59pm, though masks are set to stay. From tomorrow, businesses will be able to choose whether or not to require customers to present vaccine passes for entry, a move that has been described as a win for business, but received negatively by people with at-risk Fano. Cabinet is set to review the alert level settings today, with many pundits speculating on a shift down to the more permissive orange light setting. That decision will be announced later this afternoon. Incumbent Mayor Aaron Hawkins has announced that he will be standing for re-election in this year's October local body elections. Hawkins announced his candidacy in a social media post Sunday night, saying he was proud of his achievements the council has made over the last two and a half years, including investing in public playgrounds, housing and building a more people-friendly city centre. Hawkins joins a raft of other sitting councillors who have declared themselves for candidacy, including Councillor Lee Vandivis, who came a close second to Hawkins in 2019. Hawkins will again be standing with the backing of the Green Party of Aotearoa, a backing which saw him become the nation's first ever Green Mayor in 2019. Beloved student haunt, the Taj Mahal restaurant on George Street has been ravaged by fire. A fire was reported at the Taj Mahal restaurant in the early hours of this morning and fire engines and crew attended a call out to the restaurant around 3.30am. Extra personnel were initially called in, however the blaze was soon downgraded. Photos taken of the interior show that the restaurant has been scorched with walls blackened and furniture cracked or destroyed. Firefighters were still attending the scene this morning at 9am where the street was cordoned off to pedestrians. The United States Senate has voted to make daylight savings time permanent in 2023. The bill, if passed, would keep time consistent year-round and would stop people needing to change their clocks twice a year. It is being sold as a way to bring more sunshine and less depression to people's days. The thoroughly American-sounding Sunshine Protection Act passed unanimously in the Senate but will require the approval of the House of Representatives and US President Joe Biden to become law. The 64th Annual Grammy Awards are set to start at midday New Zealand time today. Critics are looking to young singer-songwriter Olivia Rodrigo to potentially sweep the Big Four Awards, receiving nominations for Best Song, Album, Record and New Artist of the Year. This would be the fourth ever time a single artist had swept the categories, with the latest being Billie Eilish in 2020. The Best Album category is being tipped as the most stacked competition, including nominations for Kanye West's Donda, Doja Cat's Planet Her, Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga's Love for Sale, and Lil Nas X's Montero. That's the news. Now for weather. The Radio 191 FM weather. I in we have a high of 18 degrees, fine cloud breaking up a little bit this afternoon, some northeasterlies moving through the system, a low of 13 overnight. Tomorrow, a warmer day, high of 23 degrees, however, some rain coming through in the afternoon and evening, and a low of 12 overnight. And that's your weather. That was Bonnie with the Bulletin and Weather. Coming up now, we have Algis Harding with Bubbles.
You're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1. Last week, Air New Zealand announced that it would be beginning the largest capital-raising endeavour in the history of the company, setting out to raise over $2 billion New Zealand dollars to support the company as it repays its debts and ramps up operations with the border reopening. As Air New Zealand's flagship carrier, and only major source of rapid transit across most of the country, could big changes to the airline mean big changes for transport across Aotearoa? We're joined live on the phone now by Professor Helen Roberts from the Department of Finance at the University of Otago to break down what the announcement really means. Kia ora, Helen. Kia ora. Thank you, Quinton, for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. Helen, would you mind breaking down what these renounceable rights offer means? Certainly. So a right is an option. It means that if you already own shares in Air New Zealand, Air New Zealand wants to raise them more what we call capital, which is long-term funding, so money the firm is going to use to help re-establish routes, buy new aircraft and start to get the business up and running again as the COVID regime passes. And that means that in the first instance, as a shareholder, I might like to own more shares in the company when the company is issuing new shares before other shareholders are given the option of buying new shares. And essentially what that does, it protects my voting rights, it protects the proportion of ownership that I have in the company. So these new shares that they will be opening up to current investors, where do they come from? Are they ones that the company already owns? or? Yes, so the company will have had a certain number of shares that will be written into its constitution, so its Articles of Association will say how many shares it's allowed to have on issue and then it's allowed to issue new shares up to that maximum amount. And what these issue, well, what the rights offer does, it says if I'm already a shareholder, I have the right to participate in some of those new share offerings. And so these new share offerings, will they be available to investors that don't already own shares? Initially, no. So there's about a three-and-a-half-week window where an existing shareholder has the opportunity to say, yes, I want to participate. So for every share I currently own, I'm allowed to buy one new share at 53 cents each. And after that time, well, during that time, if I don't want to participate, I can sell the rights to buy new shares to somebody else, and they can then exercise the opportunity to buy those shares. And then after that, Air New Zealand will look at how many shares has it been able to sell under the rights offer, and then it may choose to issue some other new shares to shareholders who don't currently own shares in Air New Zealand. And so how do you think shareholders will react to this announcement? Yeah, that's a good question. It will depend to some degree on uh, the risk aversion of the individual, um, the age of that individual in terms of where they see their investment in Air New Zealand being in the next five years, for example. So as a young, a younger investor, I know there are a lot of Sharesies investors out there and Sharesies has about 6% in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, it could be seen as an opportunity to buy at a very low price um, the shares of a company that has a very good reputation in the transport industry with the opportunity to potentially gain from that investment as Air New Zealand begins to re-establish itself as an international air carrier. As an older investor, you might question the ability of Air New Zealand to use new capital to re-establish its business, and it might be that you know a two to five year time horizon is, is too long for you, and uh, you might choose to sell your rights and let someone else participate in that capital raise. And so given Air New Zealand's role in transport across the country is the major way of accessing most of the regions, any changes to the airline could have drastic effects for New Zealanders. Is this 
the sign that they're needing to raise more capital. Should New Zealanders be worried about this? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's backed by the government, right? The government is a 51% stakeholder in this business, so I think that gives us uh, some surety that Air New Zealand will continue to provide the service it has provided. It certainly has a very good reputation in the airline industry, and it has proven itself as being a leader, certainly going into United States, Australia, and Asia. So they're the markets where Air New Zealand has traditionally done well and is recognised for the standard of care and the quality of the service it provides. And I think that's something that investors can take heart in. And as with any investment, there is always a risk. So I guess you are having to consider the risk of the success of Air New Zealand going forward relative to the cost of the investment. Um, is, do you believe that this is a sign then that New Zealand needs a publicly owned airline? I think the size of New Zealand has really, to some degree, defined the fact that uh, having an air carrier that can operate completely independently of a large investor like the government is, is very difficult, especially when you suddenly hit periods of time where there is a large amount of uncertainty, such as the COVID pandemic, um, periods where you know price of oil goes up and we need an essential service like a, an air carrier and certainly the government has been a key investor in ensuring that that service continues. So, yeah, I don't think at the moment our economy can support a private air carrier service. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. That was Professor Helen Roberts from the Department of Finance at the University of Otago. Coming up on the show, we have Chloe Swarbrick talking about landlord references. But before that, here is Daffodil with House Across the Street. You're on the R1 News.
each other I miss you all the time I tell you what I'm thinking But now you're in the house across the street You're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1. It's 11.23am and that was House Across the Street by Daffodil, a New Zealand artist. Coming up now, we look at a scenario playing out across the ditch in Australia. We're asking your landlord for a reference from a previous tenant may soon become more than a simple leftist pipe dream. And we speak to Green MP Chloe Swarbrick about the situation. What started out as a joke may now become legislation for Australian comedian Tom Cashman whose landlord reference stunt has now made its way to the Australian Capital Territory State Government, where an Australian Labour MP has put forward a bill to enable tenants to ask their landlords for a reference from a previous tenant. Australian comedian Tom Cashman went viral on social media platform TikTok when he was rejected by a potential landlord after asking them for a reference from a previous tenant. The saga continued when he was further rejected from another rental property simply for having asked the previous potential landlord for a reference without ever having even asked this potential landlord themselves. The saga has sparked debate around the power imbalance between landlords and tenants, with landlords often asking potential tenants for three or more references for a rental property before offering them a lease, compared to tenants who often know little about the landlord before taking on said lease. R1 News spoke to Green Party MP Chloe Swarbrick this morning about her thoughts on landlord references. Okay, sweet. So um, my first question was just, what is your take on that landlord reference saga? Uh, my take is that that tenant has a lot of balls. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, inside a, a, a kind of system of renting, which is you know relatively similar to here in Aotearoa, uh, for somebody to showcase that things can be done differently and where there is the best balance of power, uh, yeah, just, just really showcasing the problems inside of the system. Cool. Um, and so if asking for landlord references was to become the norm, do you think that that is something that should be protected at a legislative level or just left as kind of an informal process? So if we start from first principles, uh, the kinds of things that I and the groups have been advocating for now for a number of years is that we have to completely overhaul the way that we look at the system. So we currently have a situation where, you know, better than the status quo, we've implemented these things called healthy home standards, where it is required that properties that are being lent out uh, have reached certain standards. But as many renters and tenants, and particularly students, will tell you, a lot of the time, given that this is something which the government doesn't hold a central repository of data on, uh, certain landlords are giving themselves exclusions where, in fact, that might not be up to legal standards. That's why the Greens have long been advocating for what we call a rental warrant of fitness, where effectively front load any of those potential issues with people complaining further down the track that, you know, the healthy home standards aren't being reached, effectively with a kind of certification of, you know, we've ticked the boxes and there is an independent review of the fact that this home is up to standards. Uh, and that would also, 
out there who regularly saw my inbox with claims about being good landlords. Uh, this would be great for the landlords because it would protect them from future liability uh, in court cases. Uh, we'd also say that there's a need to be a kind of register of landlords and property managers. So you may have seen recently that the government is now moving on that property managers bit. Interestingly, uh, this is consensus which Parliament shared way back in 2008 as something that was necessary. <laughs> but it didn't do it. And now, you know, more than 10 years later, we're in a situation where the government has no idea whether there are 2,000 or maybe 7,000 property managers in the country. We also know that there's approximately, maybe around 200,000, maybe around 350,000 landlords. If we were to model what we see working really successfully in different places in Europe, particularly in Scotland, with a registered property manager and landlord, that would mean that those who are registered, which would be required to be everybody, have to reach a certain level of standard that is education, awareness of their rights and responsibilities, uh, and also those who are consistently failing on reaching those standards would be blacklisted and not able to continue to operate in the way that, for example, right now, if a landlord or property manager has taken multiple times over through the tenancy tribunal and consistently found to be in the wrong, they can continue to engage in that bad practice with next to no uh, kind of big-time responsibilities thereafter. So then on that landlord wasp idea, do you, would a landlord reference become a part of that or is that a separate issue? Well, it would be something that would be held uh, by the government effectively or by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, MD, who currently holds all bond lodgement data. So we have the system that, at the moment <laughs> in place if we just wanted to maximise their efficacy. So it wouldn't be the same kind of thing as a tenant coming forward and saying, hey, look, I want to see your subjective version of what you think your references are, a la a CV when somebody's applying for a job, but it would in fact be something which is held centrally with say, you know, this landlord picks all these boxes, here's how many homes that they own, uh, and here's the amount of times that they may have been taken to tenancy tribunal, here's the amount of times that they have had consequences for bad behaviour, here's, you know, the fact that they actually have a dwelling record because none of those things have happened. Yeah. Um, and so then do you think that a landlord reference, in, in kind of the sense of how a tenant gives a reference, would have much of an effect or serve much of a purpose in the current housing crisis?
cannot just tinker around the edges. So sure, you know, putting uh, in place right now some kind of requirement for landlords to put forward a reference, you know, it, it would definitely make uh, some tenants and differences feel a bit better, especially those who've had really bad experiences of being screwed over, and it wouldn't fix the fundamentals. And that's why it's really important that we do those basics. We fix the fundamentals of the system, because far too often, I think that's been based around things like the cost of housing. And I'm regularly told by those who represent property investment interests that, you know what, young people should get used to just renting the, the, the rest of their life. It's not inherently a bad thing. No one's saying it's inherently a bad thing, but the system at the moment and the way that we've set our economy up for our house to be somebody's ticket to borrowing, to start a business, or whatever else, that equity and security in your retirement does demonstrate that there needs to be substantial systemic change in order to make renting for somebody's lifetime an actual viable thing. Um, and so, so last question for you, on that idea that people are going to be renting forever and ever and ever, what do you think the biggest balance of power issue between tenants and landlords is? Uh, it's fundamentally, you know, if you really to boil it down to the basics, and it may sound dark to say this, but it's the fact that landlords own the place and it's that tenants do not hold that security, so therefore have next to no leverage in the same way that a landlord might be able to pick somebody out. And again, that's where we get down into uh, tenant or renter protection and rights, uh, but also those things around uh, kind of affordability and otherwise. That was Green MP Chloe Swarbrick on landlord references and the potential for a landlord warrant of fitness. Coming up on the show, we speak to Alan Robb, a heritage tram driver and tram enthusiast, about the potential for using heritage trams as public transport. Before that, here is Louisa Nicklin with Movin' Slow. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show today, you can text in on 0212 Radio 1. That is 021 272 3461.
You're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1. It is 11.36 and the song you just heard was Movin' Slow by Louisa Nicklin. Throughout the show, if you have any questions or comments, you can always text in on 0212 Radio 1. That is 0212723461. Public transport in Dunedin is notoriously underdeveloped, with buses only recently getting a cashless payment system and the city still lacking a public transport option from the CBD to the airport. It wasn't always this way, however. The city was once alive with trams and cable cars, carrying commuters up the hills and across the town. As an April Fool's prank, the Otago Daily Times published a piece announcing the funding and reintroduction of heritage trams into Dunedin as a boost to public transport. The, the piece gained popularity with readers and has once again reignited the debate around the city's public transport system. Dunedin City Councillor and Merrill hopeful Jules Radich said that the article highlighted the fact that Dunedin needed a better public transport system. However, he rejected the use of vintage trams to achieve this, instead leaning in favour of an electric bus loop. Radich even went as far as to suggest that the electric bus could be painted in the style of a vintage tram. Councillor Steve Walker had similar feelings, supporting the council's long-suggested loop bus idea, but believing that a tram system was too expensive to install and maintain. Councillor Walker further suggested a tramway system would limit many of the other people-centred amenities um, improvements planned for George Street. While in his words, trams were an awesome, romantic extra in terms of a tourist product, Walker believed that trams were not an efficient element in, in a part of a modern transport strategy. We're joined on the phone now by Alan Robb, a tramway enthusiast, tram driver in Christchurch, and also my granddad. Kelda Grandad, thanks for coming on the show. Kia Quinton. Very good to be able to talk with you. Um, can you give us a brief rundown of the history of Dunedin Tramways? Yes, certainly. Dunedin has the distinction of having been the place where the first electric trams in New Zealand operated. That was back in October 1900. 23rd of October, three electric trams started a service connecting Roslyn and Maori Hill. Now, that was a really great step forward. It was a private operator that began running that tramway system. And other trams uh, systems op started operating in, the, in New Zealand following Dunedin's example. In fact, in December 1903, the City Council commenced its own corporation tramway, and they were the very first city corporation in New Zealand to operate a municipal tram service, so they were ahead of the rest of the cities. Dunedin had electric trams operating under the auspices of DCC right through till 29th of March 1956 and then all the trams were closed and uh, the tracks were torn up or sealed over. That was a sad day uh, because trams were certainly efficient and although they had been neglected during war times, uh, modern trams are much more efficient and quieter and more pleasant to ride in. But there's still a place, I believe, in many cities for a heritage tramway to operate, sometimes as part of the public transport system. So you've, you've pretty much alluded to my next question there, which was, in your experience as a heritage tram driver in Christchurch, do you think that these would make for an effective public transport system? They would make for a part of an efficient public transport system, depending on the population of the area to be served. We've seen in many large cities electric tram systems coming back into service and they are definitely part of the transport scene. 
Dunedin's population, I think, is about 133,000 at the moment. Christchurch is about 330, something like that. We've been operating the system in Christchurch now for 27 years. Now, that's pretty good. Uh, It's a part of the public transport system, in a way, because citizens in Christchurch can, in fact, buy an annual pass and use the trams free after that for 12 months for unlimited rides. They also get rides on the gondola, which is operated by the same company that operate the trams. And uh, that, to me, is a win-win situation for both tourists and locals because a number of people coming to Christchurch will ride on the trams for the duration of their visit. When we had cruise ships coming here, all their riding would be done on one day and then they'd be off again uh, on the cruise ship. Those days will come back when we do get cruise ships bringing people. But for the moment, I can say from my experience as a tram driver that I see a lot of Christchurch people hopping on the tram, producing their annual pass, and they're using it as part of the transport system, largely because it's going where they want to travel to, and that's in the central city, to the museum, the art gallery, public library, the shopping area, the transport bus hub, etc. So there is a place for it, and that's what has to be very carefully looked at uh, when you are looking at having a heritage tramway system because those vehicles are typically not as accessible as modern trams are. Excellent. And so then, have you yourself ever ridden on a heritage tramway system used as a public transport? Yes, uh, I have done a little of that. Over in Melbourne, they've got a great modern tramway system, but they've also got some of the heritage trams providing around the city loop which is actually run as a free one, so visitors and locals can get on the tram and uh, get from one place to another within the central city. It works very well. They give a commentary, and that's very helpful for visitors. So it's both serving the uh, citizens and the uh, tourists that are in the city. That works very well. Bendigo in Victoria, Australia, also has a heritage tramway system that uh, has been run now for probably about 20 years or more uh, as a heritage tramway system. It's got vintage vehicles. It's uh, very successful in that role. They tried using it as a public transport system, but back in about 2009, 2010, they decided that the people of Bendigo weren't using it satisfactorily, not using it enough as a public transport system, so that's now dropped out. And they've just gone to a system where it's $10 for the day for your tram ticket, and you can ride on their trams as many times as you want to. Naturally, the locals can use that as well, but they don't have a special uh, locals rate as well. And so, lastly, to your knowledge, how does the environmental impacts of a tramway system compare to, say, a bus system? If you're talking about diesel buses, trams are winning hands down. If you're talking about electric buses, and those are certainly being used in much greater numbers now here in Christchurch and elsewhere, then the electric buses and the electric trams are both environmentally friendly, they're comfortable, they're accessible. But there is something about the electric vehicles 
that the vintage trams, the heritage trams, attract people and they are not the same as the public transport system that you get elsewhere because usually on those heritage systems you'll be giving a commentary. You'll be telling people what they can see, what they can do at the next stop. And that makes the experience, both for locals and for tourists, much better rather than just having a silent driver sitting up the front and uh, driving round and round. That's not an attractive thing for someone visiting a city. I could imagine coming down to Dunedin. I've been visiting Dunedin for over 60 years now. And I could imagine visiting Olverston, say, walking down, catching a tram, took me down then to the museum around the university area that took me down to uh, railway station to um, Toitu, the early settlers museum to the shopping area that would be a great advantage to me to be able to get on and off at any of those stops knowing that there was a, an electric vehicle trundling around there regularly and I think that there's got a a very serious case to be looked at for using a system like that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you here. You're very welcome. That was tramways enthusiast and current tram driver in Christchurch, Alan Robb. Coming up next on the show, we explore the future of vaccine passes, and following that, we speak to critic Tiaruhi editor Fox Mayer about this week's issue. Until then, here is Polaroids of Polar Bears with The Secret to Treading Water. Take a deep breath. You're listening to R1 News.
This is R1 News here on Radio 1. Ko Quintin Tiene. Just a quick follow-up from our previous story about tramways in Dunedin. The first electric tram in Dunedin that used to run from Roslyn to Moldy Hill has actually been cosmetically restored and is currently housed at Toitu Settlers Museum. Vaccine mandates are by and large being abolished tomorrow after four months of being a part of everyday life. From tomorrow, it will become entirely optional for businesses and private organisations to require vaccine passes as a condition of entry. Previously, most hospitality venues, close proximity businesses and organisations such as churches were required to check for vaccine passes in order to take advantage of the relaxed restrictions that came in with the traffic light system. As well as being abolished for patrons and customers, vaccine passes will no longer be required for staff in some close proximity positions, though mandates will remain in place for health sector workers, those working in prisons, and some roles within the Defence Force, Police and Fire and Emergency. Many businesses are welcoming the removal of mandatory passes, which follow the removal of compulsory QR codes and increases on gathering limits under the red setting. However, Many are also holding out for a shift from alert level red to orange. In a press statement released on the 23rd of March, Hospitality New Zealand said that even with increased venue capacity and requirements for social distance any sorry, <coughs> I'll start that again. Any requirements for social distancing and seated patrons were detrimental to businesses and questioned them staying in the red setting. Whilst businesses are welcoming the easing of restrictions, New Zealanders who are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19 and their families remain on high alert. Last week, R1 News reporter Scott Favell spoke to the Otago Disabled Students Association, who say that the easing of restrictions weakens the protection mandates provided for immunocompromised people. ODSA asks that students remain careful with hygiene, masks and social distancing, and they want hybrid lectures to be accessible. What do the experts say? Speaking to RNZ, COVID-19 modeler Michael Plank cautioned against removing restrictions too quickly, saying it creates the risk of a large second wave. While cases in the previous epicentre of Auckland have been decreasing and nationwide they are trending down, some places such as Christchurch are still seeing high case numbers. Epidemiologists say a second wave is likely, possibly around mid-May. Since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been just under 600,000 cases reported in Aotearoa and 350 deaths. The vast majority of cases and deaths have occurred during the Omicron outbreak. Cabinet will meet today to decide whether the change to alert levels in any part of the country will be going ahead. Coming up next on the show, we speak to critic Tiarohi editor Fox Mayer. But before that, though, here is TG Sand with Little Civ on R1 News.
You're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1. Joining us live on the phone now is critic Te Arohi editor Fox Mayer to talk about this issue, the sixth instalment of the year. Kia ora, Fox. Great to have you on the show. Hey, good morning. Um, so, Fox, straight away, the first main feature I noticed was the one about the quarterly exec reports. How long does it take you all to go through these? Uh, it's definitely shorter this year than it has been in the past because we've got a, a nice big news team work. Oh, I'd say the, the thing that took the longest is probably finding the appropriate memes. <laughs> yep. How many of you were working on it this year? I believe we had five of us working on it this year. Oh, right. And previously, have you done that alone or just a smaller number of you? Uh, I'd be about two or three people working on it. Okay, well, that must break up the workload a bit then. Um, so my following question is about the piece of the students who went to Antarctica. It sounded like they drink quite a bit. Have you been inclined to open a liquor store down there? <laughs> well, I I don't know exactly how profitable it would be, but I imagine you wouldn't really have to worry about refrigeration. Um, <laughs> it really That was a really interesting piece. I mean, it sounds like it functions, as they said, just like anywhere else in the world, you know. Scientists are always going to have, you know, a bit of stress to to deal with, and I think that's just one of the ways they do it. But, you know, they're, they're doing good work down there, and I, I think they deserve a few beverages if they want them. What did you think about their choice of alcohols using Tui's primarily? Oh, well, that would be the Americans. Um, the Kiwis would were not exactly stoked to find out that that was their beer of choice. <laughs> the Kiwis were using Spates. Um, and there's that story about the Americans swindling them out of... Uh, out of a crate of spades, which they thought they were trading for a crate of nice IPAs from the States, but they just lined the outside of it with the nice IPAs, and the ones on the inside were still twoies. And I think they said that they were very disheartened, to put it lightly, when they found <laughs> out that they'd been cheated like that. I, I appreciate that that response. <laughs> um, so then the next one about the Adamoana independence movement. Um, I had hmm. a quick peruse of Trade Me earlier, and there is a little one-bedroom batch out in Adamoana for sale at the moment. Um, was that a hint that you're going to move out there to help them redeclare independence? Oh heavens, no! I think. Um, oh gosh, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, they, they they could do what they want. I don't think they have any plans to do that. But I think that the commute from Adamoana into the critic office might be a bit too much for me because <laughs> I do not actually own a car. Right. Yeah. That's you're going to spend half your day walking there and then half back, and you've no time to write critic anymore. Yeah, exactly. Which you know, some people might be glad for, but you know, I'd like to have a job. So. Is, is Critic going to start writing opinion pieces then that the DCC should put bus routes out there? That's oh, not a bad idea. <laughs> I don't know, maybe like a like a water ferry? That, that'd be cool. That would be cool. Um, and so then your Mr. Worldwide this week took you a bit longer than last. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> how, how did you find doing that? Oh, man, that was tough. I don't know if you can see it in the print, but there was like there was a little pizza shop on the bottom left-hand corner that I ended up Googling, and there's about 50 of these Lapinos pizzas in India, and I was looking through all of them, and I think I looked at legitimately every single branch of that store in the entire country of India before I found the one that it was. And I was looking at, like, I've spent so long on the Wikipedia page for Catholic churches in India, I looked at each of those. It wasn't even a church in the end, the one that I was looking at. But we got there. We got there. Oh my goodness. And then you said you were hungry. Was that just because you had to go through all 26 of them and it took you forever? Or was it the pizza actually looked good? Definitely a, a combination of both. I mean, two and a half hours trying to find one <laughs> little pizza shop in India is going to be a bit of a brain drain. But um, we're determined. You know, we're that column, I, I want to go all year without missing a single one. <laughs> keep, keep the submissions rolling in. How does the time cost of doing that, spending two and a half hours for that one page, <laughs> compare to a normal article? 
disproportionate, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a very good use of my time, but I tend to do that outside of normal work hours because it's, it's fun. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show again today, Fox. It's great to have you here. Anytime. See you next week. See you next week. That was the Fox Mayor from Critic Tiarohi here on R1 News. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you all for listening in today. Um, I have been Quentin Jane, and I was your host today. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.